Please turn with me to Romans chapter 11. And we want to look again at these first uh, 10 verses and uh, finish what we started last week. And I'll just, uh, I'll do this again in a second, but let me just uh, very quickly give you the the outline, the, the four sort of headings that we're using to think about this passage. There was first Paul's initial response, his God forbid, his by no means in answer to the question, has God rejected his people? And then following that, there is a threefold answer which he gives, which we'll pick up with. And following that, uh, there is Paul's uh, reminder, if you will, his affirmation of the grace of God. And then finally, he works out an implication of all of this as it pertains to God's people Israel. And so there is an initial response, there is an answer, there is an affirmation, and then there is an implication of it all. So read with me, beginning at verse 1, chapter 11 uh, of Romans. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. What is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. God, give us grace and help as we seek to understand his word. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we admit that we are in the midst of profound things. uh, And we are not profound people. Uh, We are children We are mere babes, so limited in our capacities. And so, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, come and babble to us. Speak to us by your Spirit's power through your Word, but in language that we can understand for the praise of your glorious grace. We ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you know that uh, one of my all-time favorite books is a book by Cornelius Plantinga uh, called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. It's a great book title, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Uh, My guess is that 
that at points in your life you've just sort of thought to yourself, man, I wish things were different. I wish things were different from the way they are. Well, so does God. So does Jesus. That's the whole point of the gospel. God sends his son into the world to be the great serpent crusher, to be the great renovator, to bring, to be the one who brings renewal and transformation and ultimately consummation and the total transformation of everything so that things are the way they're supposed to be. That's the gospel. You can pray for me because that's what I want to preach next week to a bunch of men and women who live in very difficult places and who wish very much that things were different from the way they are for them. I think if you were to peel back the layers of Paul's psychology, you would find Paul suggesting something kind of like that in the questions that he raises. His grief, his anguish has to do with the fact that things are not the way he wants for them to be. They're just not the way he wants for them to be. He uses the word anguish, doesn't he, in chapter 9, the first few verses. He talks about anguish over the fact that his own countrymen will be and are among those who are lost. And he feels it deeply because the stakes are so high. He feels it deeply because the stakes are so high, folks. Now, this isn't a piece of theater for him. This is not a guy who, who took this job because, because it's inside work and there's no heavy lifting and the benefits are decent. This is a guy who took this job because God, even before he was born, while he was in his mother's womb, Galatians chapter 1, had set him apart for this job, this job of carrying the gospel to the world. And he's in the business of communicating the gospel. And as he communicates the gospel, he sees his countrymen rejecting the gospel as he once rejected it. And he feels the weight of it because the stakes are so high. I hope we at some level understand this. The stakes are so high. Paul is not a universalist of any stripe or kind or shape. I wish the universalists were right. I wish things were different from what they are. But the Bible is not universalist and Jesus was not universalist. You know, there are two kinds of universalism. There's the kind of universalism that says everybody will be saved no matter what they believe, what their religious convictions are, because all religions have equal validity. They're equally true. They're just knockoffs of one another. There's that kind of universalism. But there's the other kind of universalism, the kind that says, in quoting the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ will all be made alive. There's an understanding out there that because of that statement, Paul is advocating a kind of Christian universalism. Paul understands that that is not the case. The stakes are high. Those of Paul's brethren who reject this gospel will be lost. They will be lost. So as he wrestles with these questions, he knows what the stakes are. 
And that's why his heart is so deeply affected. C.S. Lewis in this this little essay on learning in wartime begins his little essay with this sort of recognition of the fact that every person you pass on the street, every person you pass in a car, on the highway, every person you encounter is headed in one direction or another. Either in the direction of eternal glory and blessedness or in the direction of eternal perdition and judgment. It's a mind-numbing reality, and those are the stakes. And Paul preaches this gospel because he was called to it and because he knows that the stakes are so high, and yet his heart, right, his heart is filled with this anguish because the stakes are so high over the fact that his brethren, according to the, to the flesh, are rejecting this gospel. And so he's dealing with questions. Does that mean God's purpose has failed? His promise has failed? No. Chapters 9 and 10 give an answer to that question. The promises of God are fulfilled in the true seed of Abraham, the true believers, the faithful remnant language that he uses here in chapter 11. No, God's purpose does not fail. Next question, has God rejected his people? They have rejected him. Has he rejected them? And his answer again is no is no. And his first response, as we've said, is may it never be. God forbid that the, that the promise of God, God forbid that the covenant with his people, God forbid that God's purpose to save his people would fail. God forbid that such a thing would be the case. And then he gives this threefold answer. And we looked at the first part of the threefold answer last week. His first answer, first part of the answer is personal. Look at me. Look at me. I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. If God has rejected his people, this is the reasoning. If God has rejected his people, then I would be rejected. See, it's a kind of a tight form of of logical reasoning. If God has rejected his people, then I would be rejected. But I have not been rejected. I have been saved. I'm a Jew, even a persecutor of the church. I was present at the death of Stephen. I, even I, am a Christian. That is proof. That is evidence that God has not rejected his people. If he'd rejected his people, I would be rejected. I'm saved along with thousands of other people. And so the answer is no. God has not rejected his people. Then he comes to this next part of the answer, what we can call the covenantal answer to the question. He's given the personal answer. Now in verse 2, he gives the covenantal answer. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He's not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, who is he thinking about here? Who is he thinking about here in verse 2 when he says this? 
And this is a somewhat technical thing, but let me just give you what are the main and basic options here as we try to understand what Paul has in mind as he says this. He's given the personal answer, I am proof that God has not rejected his people. Then there's this statement, this covenantal statement, that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Who are these people whom he has in mind? Is he thinking, on the one hand, of the entire nation, both the faithful and the unfaithful, both the obedient and the disobedient, all of the physical descendants of Abram, Or is he thinking of the true seed of Abraham, the true people who, like Paul, by God's grace are what they are, having come to believe in Jesus the Messiah? In other words, is he thinking about the elect people in the midst of the elect nation? It's a technical question. The scholars are divided. Let me give you my opinion. You can read the commentaries if you want to sort it out for yourself. My own view is that Paul is thinking of the nation as a whole. He's thinking of physical Israel. God has not rejected the nation as a whole. The people who are in view are the Jewish race. And the point that Paul is seeking to make is that his coming to faith in the Messiah along with thousands of others, again, is proof that God has not abandoned the nation. God is still working in the midst of the nation. God is still working in the midst of this people, whom he years and decades and centuries before had called in calling Abraham, the covenant people. What does he mean when he, when he uses this language of foreknowing? God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That's covenant language. And what Paul has in mind is this long, long history. This is what we want to see What we want to see is this long, long history of God's faithfulness to this covenant people beginning with Abraham and all of those physical descendants who have come from Abraham. It's covenant language. It's language used, for example, in Amos chapter 3, verse 2. You only, as God through the prophets speaks to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Who? You, Israel, the sons, the daughters of Abraham. It's covenant language. And it recalls Israel's glorious history as a redeemed people. It recalls Passover. It recalls the Exodus. It recalls God bringing his people, the entire nation, to himself. He brought the entire nation to himself at Mount Sinai. And he said to them, to the entire nation, you yourself saw what I did to the Egyptians, how I brought you to myself, how I bore you up on eagles' wings that you might be for me a treasured possession and a kingdom of priests. That's Exodus 19. 
And in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and following, as God, through Moses, preaches his final servant to the people before Moses departs and Joshua takes over. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, you together are a people holy to the Lord. That is, set apart to the Lord. That's what holy means there. It means set apart to the Lord and for the Lord. You are a people holy to the Lord. He has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. He loved you, though you were the least. Are we hearing some themes here? See, here's what God is doing through the story of Israel. He's really talking about himself. He's really teaching us about himself and how he works and what he is like and what he does. He has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, having borne you up on eagles' wings, having brought you to himself. And he has loved you, though you were the least of all the peoples, not because you were the most numerous. You know what ethnocentric Christianity is? Ethnocentric Christianity is this, or ethnocentric religion. Ethnocentric religion says God likes us because we're bigger, better, stronger than everybody else. Deuteronomy 7 is God saying to the nation, na, 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 na. Don't ever lose sight of the fact you were the weakest and the smallest and the least of all of the nations of the earth. Find that trajectory in Scripture. It is all over the place in so many different ways and colors and hues. God loved this people, God delivered this people, God brought this people to himself. And behind all of that language of Exodus, Passover and Exodus and wilderness wandering in the direction of the promised land, behind all of that is the promise made to Abraham that God would give him descendants, that he would be father to a vast, vast multitude. God has kept his covenant. You know, pastors and theologians throughout the centuries, throughout the centuries, from before the cross of Christ and across the last two millennia down to this present day, biblical scholars, people who believe the Bible, know the Bible, and people who look at history periodically have asked this question, and they've asked this question in connection with Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. How do you account for the existence of the Jewish people today? How do you account for that? There's one answer, whether it's 20 centuries ago or 40 centuries ago, it is that God made a covenant with Abraham. And God has remained faithful to that covenant. And God has preserved 
that nation now. Hit the pause button. Return to chapters 9 and 10. And just remind yourselves that when God made the covenant with Abraham and promised him descendants and made all of those other promises to which God has been faithful across the centuries, just remember that in making those promises and in ordering things by his providence so that that nation is preserved and protected, that is not the same thing as saying every member of the nation would be saved. Right? Jacob was saved. Esau was not. But God has remained faithful across the centuries to promises that he made to Abram. And he'll continue to be faithful to those promises down to the very last day of human history and for all eternity. Has God rejected his people? No, he's a God of covenant. He's a God who, when he makes a promise, keeps a promise. And he has preserved and kept that people ultimately, and this is so critically important, ultimately he has preserved and kept that people so that two things might be put on display. His faithfulness, And the Christ, who is the reason for the existence of that people in the first place. That ultimately is why God brought them into existence. So that he might display his faithfulness. And so that from that nation, the Christ, the Redeemer of the world, might be put on display. Has God rejected his people? No. No. God makes promises. God keeps promises. And so that's his covenantal response. And then he gives a scriptural response. You could call it a scriptural illustration. It's the last element of this threefold response. Has God rejected his people? Heaven forbid. Here's the answer. Look at me. Look at God's covenant and how faithful he has been across the centuries. And look finally at the scriptures themselves. And he gives us this illustration from the days of Elijah. Elijah, who lived in a desperate, desperate time. Elijah, who lived in a time when it appeared that all was lost. Idolatry abounded. He was alone in a cave, fearful, quaking, that Jezebel was going to take him out. And this is after God had demonstrated his great power in the encounter with the 450 prophets of Baal and the other false prophets. He pulls, Paul does, Elijah out of the text of Scripture to give us an illustration again, again, of the fact that God is at work even in days of incredible idolatry and darkness. Even in days 
of massive rejection, unfaithfulness, disobedience, and rebellion. God is at work. Has God's promise failed? Has God rejected his people? No. God's people in large numbers may have rejected him, may be disobedient with respect to him, but he is faithful. And verse 4, Paul, inciting the life and times of Elijah, cites God saying, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, who kept them? Who kept them? Who, at the end of the day, accounts for the fact that in the days of Elijah, there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal? And you remember what I suggested last week. Please read that number as being theologically significant. Seven times ten to the third power. The three most important numbers in all of Scripture. Three, seven, and ten. It's perfect. It's complete. There is not one missing. There isn't one too many. There isn't one too few. It is the perfect number. It is a number God knows. It is a a number that God himself has kept. I mentioned to you Lloyd-Jones' sermon last week. I'll mention it to you again, where he goes off, which he does often. I learned from him. And where he presses the significance of those three words in the English, I have kept. What is God through Paul saying to his readers? If God does not keep a faithful remnant, there will be no remnant. Once again, folks, this is deeply humbling. It's profoundly humbling. But if you want an explanation for why there was a remnant in the days of Elijah, if you want an explanation for why there is a remnant in days of unbelief in any generation or any century, the answer is never ever to be found in that remnant. The answer is ever and only and always to be in God himself who keeps the remnant. Why are you here this morning? One reason at the end of the day. Why do you hear the things that are being said? I mean, hear them not as these sonic impressions on your eardrums, but as deep and profound spiritual truths in your souls. Why do you hear them? Why do they begin to shape you and form you and make you over these words from this very fallen and frail instrument? Because God works and keeps. Look, I have have conversations with you folks, sometimes out there, sometimes over the phone, sometimes through email, sometimes in my office. I know you're distressed. I know you look at this culture, and I know you look at the church, maybe even this church, 
and you say, what's up with this? My friends, the encouragement in this, the admonition in this, is that you look beyond what you can see to the one whom you cannot see, who keeps a remnant for himself, who is the final explanation at the end of the day, even in the midst of widespread unbelief, who at the end of the day is the answer to the question why there is a remnant at all. And the answer is God. And that should be a deep comfort and encouragement to you. Right? Truth upon the scaffold ever will prevail. Truth is on the scaffold. What's a scaffold? It's a place where things are executed. Where people are hanged by the neck until they are dead. Truth is on the scaffold. But truth ever will prevail. God will see to it. God will see to it. I don't know where Mary is, but if she were here, she'd be saying amen. And I hope in your hearts you're saying amen. I hope you are locating your hope and confidence outside yourselves and in God who is faithful. And so Paul gives then this illustration, this example from the life of Elijah. And then having answered the question with a personal response, a covenantal response, a scriptural response, I've already anticipated the third point, and that is this affirmation, verse 5, verses 4 and 5. What is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. This is the affirmation. See, this is the thing that he can't get away from. Verse 6 If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Chosen by grace. Folks, I I know I'm preaching to the choir in a lot of respects here. But I really want to ask you to recognize this yet again. If you think about what is said here, Paul, who looks at the nation, Paul, who looks at who he was, and I am convinced that with every stroke of the pen, he is remembering who he was. Remember the illustration from last week, the film Amazing Grace, John Newton, late in his life, blind as a post. Two things I know, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. The memories of human flesh rotting and dying in the cargo holds of the ships he captained. The Apostle Paul with images of the men and women whom he took from their homes incarcerated and whose executions 
he was responsible for and oversaw. Even today, from such deep and widespread, massive unbelief and rebellion, there is a remnant chosen by grace. It's the only explanation, folks. It's the only explanation. Paul goes on to say in verse 6, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. There was a time in Paul's life, and who knows, who knows, maybe Jesus even had Paul in mind when he pointed out and told the story of the publican and the Pharisee. There was a time in the Apostle Paul's life, you can be sure, when he would have said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I tithe. I give to the poor. I fast. I, I Ay-ay-ay-ay-ay-ay! You've got to be kidding me. Don't ever, don't ever let anybody suggest to you that foreknowledge in the Scriptures means to look down the corridor of history and see what someone will do in advance so that God then responds to what He sees someone doing and by virtue of what He sees someone doing, He then responds in grace. That is not grace. That disgrace is grace. Foreknowing is for loving. For loving is for choosing. For choosing is determining beforehand that individual sinners will be rescued from their unbelief, their rebellion, their hatred of God and His ways to be delivered into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Chosen by grace. And if it's not of grace, but of works, then it's no longer of grace. Do you know where we would be if God were not faithful in preserving Israel? If God were not faithful as he preserves the nation Israel in securing out of that rebellious people, a people for himself, a true seed of Abraham? Do you know where we would be if God did not act through the Messiah who came from that nation to be the Savior of the world, who now in the preaching of the gospel is taking that gospel to the nations of the earth and who is working in conjunction with the preaching of that gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit to raise dead sinners from death to life? Do you know where we would be if God did not act over toast, we'd never have gotten past the days of Noah. Ever. But across all of human history, because of what God has determined to do before the foundation of the world, God has been preserving and God has been keeping. God has been acting by grace, to keep a people for himself. 
So what's the implication? Here's the tough, tough, hard and painful implication of this. The implication is, that's what Paul's little phrase, verse 7, what then? What then? What's the implication here? Here's the implication. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Who does he have in mind? Again, he has in mind the widespread unbelief among the Jews of his day. Story's not over. Look at verse 11. This is where we're going to go in a couple of weeks. When I return, by God's grace, Lord willing, and through your prayers... 1 through 10 describes Israel's rejection as partial. Verses 11 and following describe Israel's rejection as temporary. As temporary. That's where we'll go. There's hope. There's a day coming. It'll be fun to sort that out. But for the time being, Israel failed to gain what it sought. Why? Because of unbelief. The elect obtained it. Why? Because of grace. God's electing grace. And what is God's response then to their unbelief? This widespread unbelief. God's response to their unbelief as was true with Pharaoh God's response is to give them over to themselves and harden their hearts so that their hearts become increasingly hardened. And here's the great tragedy, the great sadness, and it's frankly an appropriate thing for us to think about as we come to this table. He cites David, verse 9, let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a retribution for them. What is a table? A table is a place of fellowship. That's what the covenant is about. That's what God is about. God is about establishing relationship and having fellowship with the people. But the very image of that covenant, the very image of that relationship, the very image of that fellowship now becomes not a privilege, not a blessing, but a prison. It's one of the most painful, excruciatingly confusing things that a pastor has to deal with. That there actually can be people, I've seen it, maybe you've seen it, it's heartbreaking to Paul, it's heartbreaking to any pastor, there actually are people who can grow up exposed to all of these privileges, all of these blessings, all of the grace that is in evidence in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, in the blessings of being part of a covenant community. People can actually grow up with these things and can put their trust in those things rather than in the one to whom they point. And when that happens, these privileges become prisons, prisons of arrogant spiritual self-righteousness. Don't let it happen. Don't let it happen, my friends. As you come this morning, don't come 
And I know we have it in our hearts to be able to do. You do, I do, we all do. We have it in our hearts to do this. Don't come as Pharisees who would say, because of this or 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 that or that or that or that, I am something that somebody else isn't. Come. Come knowing who you are. Come knowing that you are like the publican. Come knowing that it is repentance. It is heart-breaking repentance that brings you legitimately to this table. It's not cleaning yourself up. It's not ordering your life well enough. It's not trusting in the table. It is trusting in the one to whom the table points. Come. But come as repentant sinners who are the beneficiaries of this extraordinary, extraordinary, limitless, beautiful mercy and grace. Come, come with the words of the hymn echoing in your minds. Grace greater than all my sin. Come, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're in the midst of things that are hard for us, the mysterious outworkings of your glorious purposes. I pray for each of us, the thing that is at the heart of it would be big and real. And that is that you save sinners. Oh, Jesus, I pray for any who are here in this room who may have heard these things for years and even decades but who have not truly abandoned themselves, their righteousness and turned exclusively and only and solely to you. I beg you, Jesus, that you would work in those hearts and rescue them from that prison. And come and be with us as we gather at this table, we ask in your name. Amen.